Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening, Rod. Yeah, all is well. Here we are for episode 74 on the 26th of June. Yeah, not quite such a nice summer's day as it has been. A bit cloudy here. We've got a topic of the weather. It's tradition now. You made me really conscious about the weather, so I thought I'd skip straight past it. Or should say breeze straight past it. Yeah, oh. it's a lot cooler and a bit more pleasant, so I'm very happy. I was in Scotland the last week. Home of my birth, though not the city of anywhere near where I'm from. I went to Edinburgh. Weather there was unseasonably hot. I actually managed to sit out at a pub drinking beer in Edinburgh in June. And never have I had such an experience. Ooh, sounds very nice. Well, it's normally raining or windy. Yeah, no, it's true, though. Nice to have a beer in your home home country, though. Yeah, it wasn't bad. The price, as a, as a proud Scotsman, having to spend £6 on one pint of lager hurt. Yeah, you might be a bit like me. I don't drink out a huge amount. And when I do and I buy, like, two drinks, you really notice the price when you just buy a couple of drinks. Well, showing my age, when I was a very young man, I used to be able to buy a pint and a pie, and that's a Scotch pie. At Glasgow School of Art, I didn't go to Glasgow School of Art. I just lived near Glasgow School of Art for a pound. A pound? One pound. You can't buy much for a pound these days. You could Even a pound shop's now like a pound twenty shop, right? Yeah, and you definitely can't buy two things for a pound, so the fact you got a pie and a drink is amazing. It was amazing. They even threw in some beans. Ooh. I know. Anyway, that makes a change from the weather. Let's do some follow-up. So first up, then you say Audio Hijack Pro has been fixed. What does this mean? Well, I think it was my tip of the week, my app of the week last week. And I, I mean it. It's a fantastic app. You can record all manner of plumbing. But there's been a bug in the last few versions that any recordings you'd made stayed in the recording tab on the right-hand side. And no matter how you would right-click on them and say delete or move to trash or show me them and then ha- manually delete them, they'd obstinately show up as sort of sim links, I guess, in the right-hand side in the taskbar. It's gone as of the fix I installed right now, just before we started the show. I can now merrily delete old outstanding waveforms, so there are now no problems with Audio Hijack Pro at all. Ooh, that's good news then. Yeah, I'm very pleased. There is a problem though. It doesn't run on the latest beta, so I can't use it. But to be fair to them, they're very explicit that's going to be the case. Yeah, no, I know. And they're doing the right thing, so I applaud them for that. Yes. We were going to do some gaming follow-up. I think it's so exciting we're going to save it for the main show. Is that right? I wouldn't say so exciting, but part of the theme of the main show. So yeah, let's let's do that in the main show. How about Beta 2? Have you upgraded your iPhone to Beta 2? I was late upgrading my iPhone because I was in Edinburgh. I had many, many things to go and do and meetings to attend, so I genuinely didn't get a chance to upgrade my iPhone. When I did install it, I wanted it to have fixed the one thing I've got a most major problem with, which is in messages or other messaging apps. If there's a message I want to edit, If I press and hold it and click edit, the keyboard then obscures all of the text that I'm trying to edit and it drives me mental. In many cases, I have to force quit the app and relaunch it again and then I can edit the text and did Beta 2 fix it? It did not. No, I have seen this problem a few times actually. And I'm kind of used to it because I've seen it on the iPad, like I say, last year when we had Stage Manager. So something weird is going on there. Yeah, there is something going on. So that's not fixed. I'm seeing some location oddness. It it's not always communicating well with my Tesla. It's not all, it sometimes still thinks I'm in Germany for some reason I'm not sure of. I did install the beta when I was in Germany, so that might be a factor. But why does it think I'm in Germany? I've seen a little bit of it when I'm in the Apple Maps app and like the map's trying to catch up with the pin or the pin trying to catch up with the, with the maps. I've seen that on beta one, I think, but I haven't seen it more recently. Yeah, so that's still a bit odd. 
It's once again prompting me to add an emergency contact, even though I did that and we talked about it on the show. It's saying, please add an emergency contact or write down this incredibly long code and then feed it back to me. I've already done this. Why do I have to do it again? I'm not seeing that one. <laughs> so I can't help that. Lucky me. But what it has fixed, though, and hopefully you agree, is battery life is definitely better. It's not brilliant, but it's a lot better. I initially agreed with you, but then coming back with all the various delays that you get inflicted upon you through traveling on British Rail in, involving flights, and it's only Glastonbury weekend, so they shut the Severn Tunnel and all that kind of stuff. I spent a lot of time on my phone. No, I had to charge it a fair bit. Oh, okay. Uh, for me, uh, I guess my phone's a year newer than yours. For mine, it, it it's okay. Like, it's not fantastic, but it's it's okay. Yeah, I've got a few whinges here, but to put it in perspective... This has been the best beta I think we've had in years in terms of stability and things working. These are fairly minor quibbles. Oh, I completely agree, and it is coming up later when TVOS hits public beta. You went all quiet. I, I kind of agree. When BetaOS for the TV comes out, I'm going to put that on because I think it's so good, but I want to wait for the public beta. Fair enough. Have we got any other follow-up? No, I don't think so. Shall we move on to news? Let's move on to news. What's our first story? So second gen Apple Watch is coming out, which I don't think is really a surprise, is it? I thought we'd get two years between Apple Watch Ultra, i got to say. I, I reckon it's such a runaway success that why wouldn't they go again? Mm, because it's quite a lot of money and I think the people that wanted it will skip a generation. I don't disagree with you there. It'll be interesting to see what they do. I'm interested to see as well, will they change any of the design of the traditional Apple Watch? Because I do feel it needs something because it's, you know, it's what we're going to be on Apple Watch Series 9. That's a lot of years, nine years where it's looked the same. And it's, I don't know, I think it needs a bit of a design tweak. I don't disagree with you. I think the revolution of the Apple Watch Ultra isn't the design. It's just the fact it's got another button on it. And I think that action button, there's talk of it coming to the phone as well is actually a really useful thing to have that one action that you want to trigger by holding it down. I think the rest of the Apple Watch range would benefit from that. I think the phone would benefit from that if there was just that one shortcut to launch the thing you wanted all the time. Isn't it funny? A physical button is the thing that puts it back on, makes it interesting again, when our, our touch screens were really the bit sort of thing that really made the iPhone such a deal, big deal. Yeah, and I wonder actually whether Apple have missed a trick and they should have done this from years ago. They could have easily had a button, an action button on the side or even like a, a rocker button where you could have two two buttons in essence in one. So maybe they have missed a trick here of actually doing that old hardware software interface that they're so good at. Hmm. The second part of this rumor, we'll see if it comes true on the watches, is that a 30-inch iMac is probably on the way. And I think that's not before time. Yeah, and no, I think 30 is a big screen size though, isn't it? I... Uh... Things get bigger, bigger TVs, bigger monitors. You're you're rocking quite a large monitor compared to what you used to have, you know, not that long ago. I think 24 inch was kind of the standard for lots of times. 27 inch is now the new default screen size for most people. So, that the big iMac was genuinely a big iMac at 27 inches, and I think it doesn't hurt to push the screen size of that up a little bit. The 15 inch MacBook Air has proven people like bigger screens. Why not? Yeah, it's probably fair. And I guess if you bring the bezels in, you can probably fit most of the extra screen space in the same chassis, which they've demonstrated before. So maybe yeah. you're right. Just to me, it sounds a bit big. But I guess I'm just getting used to having a 27-inch screen. I've had it about a year now. Yeah, I couldn't go back to such a small screen. It's 5K, though. 
yeah, you get more pixels in, but I can I can still get the problem is with with Retina displays, what the amount you can get on the screen isn't necessarily more; it just looks better. Whereas I can get more on my screen. Yeah, I need the quality more than the quantity. I think I love the pin sharpness of it all. I get it, but my eyes aren't pin sharp anymore. You know, my old, my old, my aging eyes. I can, I don't mind a little bit of blur. Don't get me wrong; I can notice it, but at the same time, I don't care enough. Okay, that's fair enough. I can understand that. Yeah, old men like bigger screens. I think that's that's the takeaway here. Title. What else have we got here? He's the rumor is unsure whether we're going to have M3 chips in any of these yet. Certainly, will be an M2. I think for this rumored iMac. I can understand why they might skip a generation with it, with the 24-inch iMac, for example. I don't think there's any great pressing need to update that. Yeah, I think that's fair. It would be nice if they got all the devices on the M2 and rather than rush us another chip and more fragmentation. So I could see this year, actually, even if all they do to the Mac range is bring out an iMac with the M2 chip, I think at least then the whole Mac range is at a really good state. Then you can start doing the M3 next year and into the following year. Maybe that's what we need, a two-year cycle. We don't need chips every year. It'd be better in a way if they did every two years and made a real meaningful bump because nobody's really screaming out for more horsepower right now. Well, this is the sort of path we're on with our phones, isn't it? We've got to the point where we don't feel we need to upgrade our phones every year. Every two years, possibly even every three years is good enough. So I think it was such a revolution. We've talked about this before. It was such a revolution with the M1. It doesn't really matter if you skip a generation or possibly two generations. You've already had that massive leap in performance and battery and all the things the M1 brought us or the M-series chips brought us. So I don't think there's a great rush for it. No, I'd agree with that. I was thinking about my phone only today. I was thinking, actually, I really like this phone. I'm not in a rush to swap it out. They'd have to be something really meaningful for me to want to upgrade, especially given the sheer cost at the moment. I think in the UK is going up, especially with the foreign exchange rate. So, no, I'd agree with that. It'll be interesting to see where they go with it. It'd be, like I say, it'd just be nice for them just to get all the Macs to a good point. So you haven't got this fragmented line, which we often go through through a transition. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm keen to see where they go with it. Fair. Good. Moving on. The EU has got our backs again and is about to pass a law, or a couple of laws, actually, calling for manufacturers to make phones in, sorry, batteries in phones more easily replaceable. And I have absolutely no problems with this. And the law is quite specific about the fact that you know, it should be replaceable by a layman, not with two massive suitcases full of tools that Apple might ship you. So it's got to be an easily replaceable battery. I am completely down with this. Yeah, this feels like a no-brainer, really, in that you should be able to swap out your battery now. If you want to get on top of e-waste, sustainability, let me just swap my battery out and not replace the whole device or have to go and employ somebody just to do it. And it, they've got a picture in the article of what reminds me of an old, I don't know what kind of phone it is, it might be an old Samsung or something, but it reminds me of, you know, what it used to be like when you had your Nokia, you could just pop, pop the battery out the back. And so, and you used to have to do it sometimes to put a memory card in or to put your SIM card in. It feels like with all of Apple's prowess, they could do this. I know they do certain things with the battery for space affordances and to maximise what they pack into such a small device. But surely now where we're going with all this tech is that you could slide the back off and you could make it look nice in there so you couldn't see or touch anything underneath the back, but you could just swap the battery out. So I would really like to see this. Well, look at the couple of sh- stories we've talked about so far. We're keeping our phones a bit longer, you know, two, three years. I might be seeing more battery fail than you because my phone's that little bit older. There's a factor for, you know, keeping a perfectly good phone and just replacing the battery. This 
makes complete sense to me. I'm with you. I remember back in the days of Nokia, you could pop the back off, you could take one battery. Well, frankly, they, they lasted so long in those days, you didn't need to change the batteries or charge the batteries quite so often either. But to have a spare with you, to be able to, for e-waste purposes, not to throw that thing away or potentially get it reconditioned. You know, we've had other stories in the past about grinding up batteries and harvesting the lithium back out. Wouldn't it be make that process an awful lot easier as well? So I'm I'm 100% for this. And I don't entirely buy the argument that you need to glue everything in place for the purposes of waterproofing or thinner phones or whatever. It's slightly in the manufacturer's interest as well. But if you've got to get rid of the whole phone, you're going to buy another whole phone. So, and of course, they sell you a new device at the same time. So... I'm struggling to see any problems with this law, frankly. No, but sure, there's an opportunity here. Oh, look, your phone knows when the battery health is deteriorating. It can just pop up and alert going, would you like to order a new battery? Or do you want to come in the store and we'll fit it for you? You know, if, if you didn't want to take the back off it. But they should be able to, you know, make their most out of it. And you know you're going to pay over the odds for it. But you'd rather spend, I don't know, £150 on a new battery than £900 on a new phone. So it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Hundred percent, no brainer. Bring it on. Agreed, agreed. I see we got some links in here about then Reddit. So Reddit still goes on then. Yeah, the Reddit saga continues. Basically, it's been a continuously moving goalpost. Last week we reported about various forums posting things about John Oliver or little gifts of John Oliver as a means of protesting. Since then, they've tried to replace moderators with moderators down the chain until they get to them. As another thing, they said they couldn't post pictures of John Oliver anymore and they'd find people that do it. So some started posting images of porn and things to make their safe for work threads not safe for work and therefore Reddit wouldn't be able to sort of bubble those to the top. It's a continuous fight really with the users of Reddit against the management of Reddit and I, it's just the most fascinating way of destroying your community in a very short space of time to me. Yeah, it feels more impressive than Twitter, to be fair. Like, they've seen Twitter and gone, hold my beer. We can do better than that. I just don't get it. It's a community-run service. Without the community putting all this good content on there, you're killing your business. How could you be so out of tune with your business? I just think it's shocking. And it kind of shows where their morals are and their, their compass is not aligned with the service they're providing. So it feels like you've got the wrong boss. Very much. I shouldn't be pushing so hard. And I read a very good thing today about the only apps they're allowing to continue to use the API are those that help disabled users access it. So people partially sighted or maybe completely blind who make use of some of the third-party apps that do screen reading and things for them, who help them manage and moderate the content, as well as non-disabled moderators of Reddit who also rely on those apps for some of the moderation tools that Reddit's app itself doesn't provide or the website doesn't provide. Reddit is in charge of this timeline. To say, you know, the apps that are helping people with disabilities won't be charged yet. Surely they could have, you know, managed that a little bit better and built those into their own apps right from the outset and built these moderation tools into the outset. They've sort of unilaterally decided that the end of July is the deadline for all these apps. And then they're going to leave the moderators who may still be not protesting in this out in the dry or the disabled users out in the dry. It just seems like the biggest own goal that you keep Picking extra own goals in over a period of time. I just don't know what to say on this. It's just stupid, isn't it? It's a stupid decision. And obviously, they're, they're, set, they're leading on that we're not making any money. But how have you let it get this bad to not make any money for the last 10 years that you're now really kicking off about it? And you're pushing so hard on that that you're then push, getting rid of the community so you can make even less money. It just seems really ill-conceived. I know. Yeah, I'm so frustrated with this. Yeah. I, I don't understand. It's it's just a 
going to be yet another business lesson how to destroy a community. And whatever money was being made on Reddit, I think is about to go away very quickly. Yeah, no, it's bonkers, isn't it? Should we move on to the next one? Because this one's too let's, sad. Let, it is quite sad. And the next one's quite short, I think. It seems the march and the dominance of folding phones is coming. So I haven't just chance to add it to the show notes, but literally just before we started recording, Google's Pixel Fold has been released to reviewers. So there's some reviews beginning to pop up of that over the last hour or so. OnePlus have leaked their V Fold phone, so their variant of a, a portrait folding phone. And we have a review of the Motorola Razr Plus as well. So in a very short space of time, three folding phones. And what I found quite interesting about the, the little bit I read on the Google Pixel Fold review is that time and market helps. So the Google Pixel Fold is an interesting phone, but the Samsung one is better because it's the fourth generation of it. Unsurprisingly, Samsung have been able to iterate on this, learn lessons they've gone on and build a better phone. And that seems to be the case with this Motorola Razr review that's also in the, in the show notes that you need time in the market to understand what people want from a folding phone, the advantages, the disadvantages, what apps are going to look like on it, how they run. And this all makes me worry that Apple might flub this slightly if they ever get one to market. Okay, so I kind of agree with the, surely the fourth phone's better than the first phone in that you need to iterate on it. And like you say, really understand what you use the two screens for. It's kind of like when they did the first Apple Watch. It had a few things right, but a lot not right, which they then fixed in it later iterations. And obviously, they, they've got to where it is now. I'm still a bit interested with this. And I this does feel like if Apple were ever going to use the iPhone Ultra brand, that this is what you'd use it for. This is what you'd call an Ultra iPhone. It's going to have the biggest screen. It's going to have the best everything, I'm sure. But they are late to market. But then Apple often are late to markets. So I wonder whether they could turn up to this market and get it. 80% right straight out the gate because they've learned from the others. Apple are very good at seeing what others do, waiting till they can make the right product and then launching. But do you think they even see there's a market there? I think they probably see there's a market there. I think Apple would quite happily sell you more phones. To me, what Apple's real advantage is, is that in the software, that they have more control over the widget. You know, they're going to be manage the two screens of the device or possibly more screens by the time you fold them in, in a better way. Do you not think they're struggling with differentiating the iPad OS and the iPhone OS in essence? And I wonder whether that's holding them back of that internal struggle of, well, I know we've got two OSs. They can't possibly be on the same device. I don't know. I It doesn't have to be in the same device though. If you think iOS can quite handily resize content on the screen well certainly ipad os can in the way you could do the split screen modes and things like that if you could imagine the main folded screen gets it decides it's actually two screens until a certain point in the opening of the of the bezel is passed at which point it becomes one display and you can split it out in a tiling way as ipad os manages i don't think it would be that hard to introduce that on a phone and i don't know whether it's you know is it is it ios made larger or ipad os made small it doesn't really matter both of them are going to be able to do that without breaking a sweat yeah true but you kind of want it to just be your iPad mini, don't you? That's what I see this device as. It's my phone and an iPad mini in, in a wanna. And I know that Apple are going to charge me those two devices and with a bit of Apple tax on the top. Yeah, that's you. But I think what's interesting about this, the Motorola Razr, is that appeals to a different market to you. You want a, lar- you know, a large phone that folds out into a small tablet. 
Whereas I think there is a market for people that want a slightly thicker phone that folds out to being a full-size one because it takes up less space for whatever. And I think that Razer is a really interesting device and in what they've done with the screens and the utility of the outside screen compared to what you can do on the inside and, and the space in the market for both of those. Yeah, you're right, actually. I think the Razer is there for a different market. And actually, I quite like the look of the Razer in that I'm trying to use my phone less and would quite like a smaller one and it could fold out when I needed it. So that does appeal as well, I must say. But I wonder what when these devices are like um, practically to use because are you forever just unfolding it all the time to use it? Or do you actually use, like with the Razer where it's got like half an iPhone screen, are you actually using that as it is? Or does it just not work? From the little bits I saw about it, it's quite useful. So the external screen is designed for those moments when you don't really want to open your phone. So you look at it to see who's calling and the name comes up or it's withheld and you can just dismiss it. You want to skip to the next track in Spotify or Apple Music and you just click a button and do it. Or a text message comes up and you don't need to deal with it right now and it's there. So that, that sort of triaging thing I quite like. When you want to actually deal with the thing, you tap on it and you open it and then it's on the main part of the screen and you can get one and do it. So I think it helps you manage your distractions. You know, for people that don't have an Apple Watch, for example, that's most of what you do with an Apple Watch. You know, you're, you're using it for a certain amount of triage before you go to the device. And I think that's a good use case. Yeah, okay. I can see where you're coming from. I would love, I'd love to try both out for a day. Can I try, you know, the Razer style flip phone for a day with iOS on it? And then the next day, try a fold phone. I would just love to see what it's like, especially traveling. I think it would be awesome. I w I'm with you. I'm with you. I thought this was quite a funny story from Six Colors about why are there, they say, periods. I'd say full stops in my iPhone searches, and that's the name of the article. And I do this all the time, certainly with the previous version of, of iOS, and I'm still doing it a little bit in the current version. Didn't we talk about this, though? Isn't this where they move the full stop button? Is Have I got that right? That's exactly what they tried to do. And so we're all getting periods, or sorry, full stops in us, in, in our typing. I don't suffer with this that much. Occasionally, occasionally, I'm in DuckDuckGo and I haven't put space in, I've put full stop, but it, it's not that common. I do it all the time, particularly if I'm trying to type in a URL, because we talked, we did talk about this before with the, with the full stop key being, you know, it's proximity to the base bar, face bar, space bar, and that's where my thumb goes. I quite like this article because it's written like you're speaking like William Shatner. And, you know, I, that's very much the way I seem to type a lot of the time. And again, I think it's made it slightly better in the current version of iOS, but there's definitely something odd that you get as many full stops as you do. Yeah, you'd have thought Apple would have some stats on this, wouldn't you? Well, yes. Yes. And it's odd that they haven't improved it in iOS 17. Yeah. Well, it's a thing. It's not just us that sees it. This is based on an article from Slate, actually, that Six Colors are agreeing with. And now we're agreeing with it, too. So if there's any justice in the world, move the period slash full stop button, please, Apple, even more so than you have in the current beta. It needs to be better in the beta. And let's get things better. Agreed. Moving on, apparently Android is to blame for a rise in the UK's false emergency calls. So this would have been something I wouldn't have expected. I actually didn't realize Android had a, an automatic notify emergency services in the same way that iPhone 14s do. And we know that's risen, led to a slight uptick in emergency calls to, in, within the States to things. But it seems that within the UK, UK police are blaming extra 999 calls on Android phones. Yeah, I thought this was an Apple iOS thing. But like you, I, I'm so out of touch with Android that I didn't know this was an Android feature as well. 
Yeah, I don't really know what to say about it. This is where tech and the real world are having problems, aren't they? Like I say, yeah, both it, Apple and Android have struggled with it. Definitely, but I mean, it's across the UK as well. I mean, in the article, law enforcement in Scotland, Wiltshire, Devon, Cornwall, and Gloucestershire have reported receiving a higher number of silent or abandoned calls since the Android update released in October 2022. And there's a little tweet from the National Police Chiefs, National Police Chief Constables Association saying the same thing. So this is not good. No, it's not good. I get why we've got the feature. And I know a lot of people don't even know their phones do it. You wouldn't want anybody to turn this off. But yet, why is it becoming more of a problem more recently? Because it's been on there for a while now. It's been on iPhones for a while and it's now been on Android for a while. It just seems odd that it's still an issue. Yeah, well, Google are recommending disabling the emergency SOS until Android device manufacturers can update the feature. So they're supporting the software, but it seems the hardware implementation isn't quite so good. Maybe it's just, you know, people are catching the bat or something. And I guess it's accidentally triggering it but i think if you do it on your iphone you have to push and hold the button for a long time and then it then makes a noise and then you have to confirm that you want it to proceed in essence yeah i think that's right unless it receives that sort of sudden stop thing that they were te- that indicates an automobile crash or something like that yeah crash guess, detections had this problem yeah. as well yeah with roller coasters particularly, I seem to recall. So it's interesting. I mean, I can understand. I have a certain amount of sympathy for Google. If they're unable to control it on third-party device manufacturers and not Pixel phones, then, you know, you can kind of get that. Yeah, true. I guess they are the people in the middle here. I guess you need the localized firmware to update it as well. Yeah, definitely. Interesting, though, and one worth keeping an eye on, I would have said. Moving on, have you seen this story about airlines in America and the 5G mess? Yes, I was actually listening to the iPad Pros podcast and they had a pilot on it and the pilot was talking about how he uses iPad. But one thing he talked about was just briefly that they do have issues landing with the 5G rollout because it can be on the same frequency as the emitter and therefore they can't always, you can't judge the height that you are in the air compared to the ground and therefore they have to rely on workarounds to, you know, to make sure that this is not a problem or talk, talk back to the tower, which isn't great and it seems a bit of a cock up for 5g well if you sort of get down at the bottom of the article it's a fight between the fcc the federal communications commission and the faa the federal aviation administration in that you're quite right that some airliners use radio altimeters so they bounce a radio signal off the ground and wait for it to come out and you get a very precise idea of how high you are as opposed to I think the barometric altimeters, which is based on the height you are and the pressure you're at on that. So I think most planes actually have both, but the, and it can be fixed. It's just a slight frequency change. And this came from when the FCC were reallocating frequencies designed for radio for 5G. So they gave the FAA a deadline that they were going to switch on this particular band of 5G. And the FAA went, yeah, 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 we can do that, no problem. But then never really sort of enforced it and it's up at the end of the month sorry the beginning of next month first of july is when this is going to go into effect there are still something like 20 percent of international airlines that still haven't got this fixed in place and a certain amount of domestic airlines so american domestic airlines that don't and the solution they've got so far is the international carriers will just try not to fly those planes that have those altimeters into the united states and the domestic carriers will try not to fly planes into areas where they're more likely to have bad weather because the issue comes when the pilots can't see the ground 
or the, the autopilot can't see the ground, so you're flying through a lot of cloud, and you might hit the mountain, I think is where you're going to with that. So neither of these things sounds great to me. No, I'm not loving that. We're trying not to not to fly there. It feels like we've made a problem where there wasn't one. Absolutely. If these these guys could have sorted out this particular date, five G band won't go live till then. Give the give the FAA another year or eighteen months or something to instruct pilots that your airlines that you can't use this anymore or you must have the fix in place. You can understand airlines not wanting to take planes out of service because if they're sitting on the ground, they're not making money carting passengers around. But Surely this could have been rolled out an awful lot better. Yeah, it does feel like 5G's had a problematic birth. I know here in the UK, there was controversy because it had Huawei hardware in it, which is Chinese hardware. Obviously, we've got this issue with being in America and trying to land. It's, I don't know, it just feels more complicated than it needs to be. And I know there's a date soon when 3G's going to get turned off here in the UK. So I'm concerned about it because every now and again I still see 3G on my phone. I'm assuming that's going to get ready to 4G or is that just going to be a dead spot? This is all a bit of a worry to me. I've I've read that 5G consumes vastly more power than 4G. Vastly more power. So for what benefit are we sort of switching off our quite tried and trusted 3G, 4G networks? 3G is good enough for lots of things, frankly. It's not that slow. We're all used to super fast home broadband now. But for the occasions I get a 5G signal that's solid enough for me to do something with, I, I don't think I use it all that much. I'd rather have something that was a bit more energy efficient and good enough where I got good, I'd rather better coverage in those places where I see 3G up to 4G than pushing ahead onto a standard that seems to be causing all these problems. Yeah, I think I'd rather just have really consistent 4G everywhere. Please, thank you very much. I don't think I really need 5G, 4G, and certainly with EE, the 4G plus network that they've had in, in the past is fantastic. So that would be my preference. I'm with you. I think we agree on that. Stop the 5G. We don't need it. Look at us. It's like being in the pandemic all over again when they were they reckoned it was all to be blamed on 5G. <laughs> yes, and our vaccines have microchips in. But if our vaccines had microchips in, you know somebody would have hacked them at run doom by now. Yes, I did see that. Very good. Yeah, I can't claim credit for that one. I saw that one on Mastodon. He's good, though. Move, moving on. This is a little feature I actually noticed with my iPhone when I was out. I was in a in Croiso Lounge, local to us in Mumbles. There's a bunch of lounge restaurants across the UK. They, you can pay at the table. You don't need to go anywhere. So I scanned the QR code, and I noticed it wasn't floating around, which as it used to do with the iPhone, you take the camera icon, the QR code would move as you move the phone and trying to tap it on a moving target was occasionally a bit challenging. In iOS 17 beta, they've pinned it to the bottom of the screen as soon as it sees it and you can just tap that and off you go. I agreed. I was in one of these lounge places too and I used the order at the table and noticed it's exactly the same. And I think we talked about this a bit last week, but it is a great feature. It just, a slight refinement. And it was clever how it bounced around before. It's kind of neat, but you don't want that. You want it just to be a fixed thing. So, yeah, I think there's some really good minor quality of life improvements in iOS 17. The other one that I wasn't aware of, but I saw a Gruber post about, was there's a sandboxed version of the QR code reader as well, built in the control center. So if you go into settings and control center, you can turn on a QR code reader, and it will give you a sandbox safari for you to try this out. Now, I did it. I'm not entirely sure why I did it. I don't know really what it gives me, but it's there if you want it. I guess it's there if you don't want to open the camera, but I don't know. It's an odd one, isn't it? Maybe some places have the camera disabled, but you can still use the QR code thing. I guess there are probably workplaces that do that, but I got to think you wouldn't even allow that, would you, if the camera was disabled? I'd have said not, but who knows? Yeah, strange one. 
But I, I'm, I agree with you. It's a nice little quality of life feature, really, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it is good. And like I said, I think a lot of what they're doing on these latest releases isn't groundbreaking, but it's some good yeah. upgrades. And it could be a 16.7 upgrade at this point. Yep. Second thing people have noticed is that iOS 17 will let users ask Siri to play media on the HomePod using iPhone apps. So this could be, hey, you don't even need to say hey anymore. Dingus, play that, you know, play from this service to that HomePod kind of stuff. So you could quite quickly see this as actually Spotify may finally get their way and you could tell Spotify on your phone to play on your HomePod. And I think that's not before time, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I am an Apple Music person, but I would agree they should be letting other third-party apps play in this pool. That makes sense. I was using my iPhone at the weekend in the car. I pushed the the button and I said, hey, play. I can't remember what I was trying to play. Something for Glastonbury. I think it was a Glastonbury 23 playlist that I'd seen on Apple Music. And then it just came back and went, oh, how do you want to play that? What app do you want to use? And I go, Apple Music. And it, it then goes, oh, you need to go to the internet to install that. And I'm like, Hang on a minute. I've just been listening to music on that service in my car. Like, why are you making this so complicated? And I get that every now and again with it. And it just puts me off wanting to use Siri because it just doesn't work for me. It's really good at setting timers now. I do use it for that. And that's probably about all I reliably use it for is to set a timer for 10 minutes, set a timer for half an hour, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's not ideal, is it? Apparently, there are also AirPlay stability improvements in iOS 17 as well, but I, I don't really use AirPlay like that very often, i got to say. I think I think CarPlay is effectively AirPlay anyway, isn't it? It's just broadcasting a TV signal of some sort to a screen, so I guess I do use that bit a little bit, but other than that... The one thing I've noticed with it is if you're playing some tunes through a HomePod, your phone seems a lot more reliable to know what's playing on the HomePod of the room you're in. So you look at your phone screen and it goes, oh, you're playing Elton John or you're playing the Glassmoo playlist and you, and you can see the tracks and adjust it. That does seem a lot more reliable than what it has been. Fair enough. I did notice we haven't really talked about up, uh, upgrading to Beta 2. Um, I have 40 gigs of apps and content on my phone. It's a 128 gig phone. I went to install Beta 2. It told me I needed 13 gigs clear to install Beta 2. Uh, and I couldn't do it. Did you have the same problem? I had exactly the same problem, but I think I've got 256 gigabyte phone. But I found it really bizarre because I had, I don't know, like 100 gigs free. So I think I ended up just deleting some movies off there to try and get it to recalculate. Sorry, I was just looking as we were talking. Where's iPhone storage? And it says, yeah, I've got a 256 gig phone and I had 87 gigabytes free. And I think at the time I must have had, I don't know, 70, 80 gigabytes free, but apparently it wasn't enough. So I don't know whether that was a glitch or not. I think it's failing to calculate properly how much space you've actually got on your phone, which that's a bit of a schoolboy error. Yeah, it is a bit of an odd one, that. I don't know where all that space had gone. And I had so much free, so just found that very bizarre. Yes, not ideal. What's our next story? Social media and news. Oh, yeah. So what was I putting in here? This was interesting to me. In in Canada, Meta and Google are being asked to restrict showing news on their social media networks unless they pay the news organisations, in essence, for the feeds that they're using. So I just thought that was really interesting. And apparently they've done it in Australia too. I just Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Somebody doesn't use social media, but I do use the Apple News app. And I know some things are paid for in the Apple News app and part of my News Plus, but how much are they scraping off other services that they're not paying for but yet they're getting the eyeballs in their app and i think they should be paying the news organizations for it because they need to exist and 
and make a living and pay their journalists. But yeah, I just found it a little bit interesting. That actually, there's yeah. law coming in, in about this and they're trying to reach an agreement on it, but yet they're carrying on with the law anyway. No, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that you've got the reputable news sources and there's always less and less reputable news sources, but certainly the well-known ones, your Reuters, your Guardian, Guardians, BBC and others, AP News, should get paid for the service they provide. You know, if, if Apple are surfacing their content, I hope there's revenue sharing going back to those news organisations. Certainly, The Guardian wasn't an Apple News Plus. It is now, so I presume The Guardian are getting a few pennies every time somebody clicks on a couple of the stories. Good, probably not. Enough money to support quality journalism, but such life. And then you've got the other side of this, which is the, the meta Facebook Twitter side of things, where you get a bit more citizen journalism, possibly, or outright lies. But you, you've got those consequences to think about. And you could understand news organizations wanting to get paid when Meta or Facebook Meta or Twitter surface things, but they shouldn't be charged for their crazy, you know, conspiracy theories that some of their users may put up there. So it's an interesting sort of dichotomy for them that they would then need to flag reputable news as reputable news and then the citizen stuff as potentially wrong, which means they've got to verify. So that's probably why they don't want to go near this. Yeah, okay, that does make some sense, actually. It is, I just thought it was interesting that we're seeing, obviously, we talked a bit about the EU, but people trying to crack down on big tech, basically. And big tech have had their way for quite a long time. And it, it feels like big tech is not going to become small tech, but is being more, uh, more policed, I guess, is the right word. Yeah, I think it's probably had its own way for too long, hasn't it? We haven't had a big court case since the, the, the Microsoft trial back way back when. We've obviously had our ongoing stuff, you know, see Microsoft again and see Google again being sued by the EU. But it hasn't really come down to the wire for a very specific thing, or certainly people have just managed to get away with it, paid a big fine and walked away. So I think some sort of reckoning is coming for big tech. Yeah, it does feel like it. And maybe it's not a big reckoning, but like a thousand paper cuts of just little things here like side loading apps we've talked about using alternative music providers and not not harvesting the internet for all the news that you want and so on and so forth so, so it's gonna be interesting to see over the next i don't know like in two years how this all plays out yeah interesting moving on you've put in a story about vision os beta yeah i didn't know how much we actually touched on the beta last week and then i thought well actually i've had a little play around with it and i just thought i'd mention it so Apple allow you to develop for all their platforms on, on the Mac. So you download Xcode, you can get some sample projects, and then you run them, and you can do this for iPhone, watch, iPad, TV, and now obviously Vision OS, and you run it in a small window on your Mac, and you can simulate your, your Apple Watch, your iPhone. And it's interesting, it's never great, because obviously you're not touching the screen like you would on your iPhone to interact with it. So if you've got some animation or something, it will give you an idea of what it's like but it's much better to actually try on the hardware. So I wanted to have a go with Vision OS and just try it out. So I installed it. It was quite a big download. I had a little click around, but it's not really a very exciting way to play with Vision OS. It's a bit disappointing in a way because you're kind of seeing Vision OS. You're getting like a sneak peek of it, but you're not getting any of the experience of it because you're not interacting with it, with the goggles on, using your hands to interact, or using a mouse and a keyboard. And it's a bit disappointing because I think it's going to ruin the first run experience of Vision OS, if that makes sense. It's like when you first had your iPhone, we didn't have simulators, we couldn't code for it. So the first time you had to go on an iPhone, 
you actually had to pick it up, touch it, and you interacted with it. And I remember doing it like you'd swipe through your photos or through some albums in the music app or probably the iPod app at the time. And it was really exciting. Whereas I think this is going to take the edge off the first launch experience of Vision OS, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think that many people will download Xcode to try it out who aren't developers, and developers will just be grateful for an ability to run their apps. I've been following some of them on Mastodon as they've been trying to get their stuff up and running the last week since this beta dropped. And some have managed very easily, some not. There's been a lot of talk about what they are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. So, for example, PCalc and Dice by James Thompson. The calculator one came up very easily, very well. That was no problem. But his Dice app, unless he actually converts it from being an iOS, iPadOS app, he won't be able to have any sort of depth to his Dice inside of his thing because all the rendering of the objects inside VisionOS have to be given off to Apple for the way that they've decided are going to be the privacy controls for what appears, what your gaze focuses on, all that kind of stuff inside the app. So while I share your reservation that somebody's going to fire this up, mouse and keyboard, I think you can use a PlayStation or an Xbox gamepad, which gives you a slightly better experience. But I don't think any of the developers are expecting this to be the same as what they tr- what they may have tried on in terms of the headset or what actually users will get to have a- their hands on. And certainly anybody I know about who might be vaguely excited about the headset isn't likely to go and have a massive download fire up Xcode and have a test project. So I don't think it's a huge worry. No, it's not a huge worry. I just think it's disappointing for a developer that your first interaction with it isn't really how it's been crafted to be if that makes sense it's great you can have a play with it and noodle around the os and get an idea for it and they've they give you some static rooms to try out on so you can see what it looks like in a kitchen or in a lounge whether it's in daylight or at night time so they've done a like they have done a fantastic job with it but it, i think it's just going to take the edge off that first run experience it is really interesting seeing the app so you can take your ipad app and just in essence run it on the headset and You'll see the difference because it it will have like a light background on it and it won't be using some of the native things. But then if you then convert it to a Vision OS app, and if you've been using a lot of the modern technologies, as you say about PCalc, it should actually convert pretty quickly. So I think it's going to be really interesting and it feels like there's going to be a lot of apps on it. I do worry that using the iPad apps on it on day one will be a bit like using iPhone apps on your iPad. It was there. It's probably still there, but nobody ever really used it. So I think it'll be a good starter but I'm super interested to see who really embraces this. And I think it, I don't know, the more I've heard about it, I think it looks quite cool. I'm, I'm interested in it, but I'm scared by the price. Yeah, similar. Uh, it's one of those things you think this is going to be the coolest tech thing ever as a as a, as a software toy, hardware toy, as much as anything else. Uh, but again, we've talked, it's the same argument as always. Where's the killer app for us? Just an observation from Steve Trouton-Smith, who we've talked about repeatedly. He's really good at delving into code and seeing what's going on in these things. And he has a few apps, broadcasts and pastel and a few others. And he was demonstrating things like sticky notes. And he was in the kitchen model, as you've talked about, there's various models and thing. And he was leaving sticky notes on the fridge in the kitchen model and going for a virtual walk around to see if they'd remain persistent when you came back. I thought, that is quite interesting, isn't it? If your virtual world has some sort of permanence in it. So when you put the headset on again next time, even if you're sitting on a plane, your kitchen model still has those notes on it. Or is it only when you're actually in your kitchen wearing the headset? So there's a lot of stuff to consider there as a, as a move to spatial computing, that what's permanent in that world? If you reboot it, does it go away? You know, If you stick another note on it, can you not see that one anymore? There's quite a lot to think about than that. Yeah, no, you're right. It is cool. And... I mean, I was racking my brains going, oh, what, what, what would be a killer app that I could do? And I've no idea. And 
I don't know enough to code it, but I just wanted to try something out, I think. So I have downloaded some of the sample projects and have a little little play with it, but I think it is cool and I'm really looking forward to see what people do with it, what, what apps come out. Like I say, the price and the fact it's not available in the UK is probably a big challenge at the moment, but yeah, I'm interested to see what, what next year is going to pan out. Like by the end of the year, are we going to have them here in the UK? I don't think this year, maybe next year. I, I just, I wanted to sort of follow up on something. So on the ATP podcast, they were talking about some of the privacy restrictions of the device, and it's not something I'd thought about in any way. And I think it's worth just sort of highlighting what they were saying here. So this is an Accidental Tech podcast. It's John Syracuse, Casey Liss, and Marco Orman. And they were talking about, it started with, you and I did mention this, that the cameras on the device aren't going to be accessible to any other developers. And I thought, mm, okay, that is what it is, that, you know, there's probably a reason for that. Maybe we'll come on later. But then Marco gave this example of it could be on your head while you're in your bedroom and you've got Safari open and it could see what you're doing with your body. And I thought, ah, yeah, actually, that's a really good point, isn't it? You know, whatever people choose to do with their free time on the devices is up to them. But normally you wouldn't have a camera recording that. And, hmm, and exactly what you're looking at with your eyeballs at that point as well. Huh, fair point, Marco. <laughs> Yeah, most people wouldn't have a camera recording themselves. I'm guessing you're right. Yeah, it is interesting. And I like the way that they said they they weren't going to pass the gaze information. So whilst you're looking at, say, a web page, the person who's running that web page can't see where you're looking. But they still know where you've clicked because obviously they need to then send you the, the page that you're going to click, click through to, which makes sense. Whereas, you know, if this was a Meta's, you know, incarnation, would you trust it not to go, know exactly where you were gazing and then you'd have heat map of which pages, you know, people look at the most and all of that and send it on to third parties. So I thought it was interesting that Apple tackled that, you know, in fairness, head on. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, the whole privacy piece, because do you remember that, that piece we had recently where they kept loads of recordings of Siri and they hadn't deleted them and people were listening to it and Tesla had something similar. What happens with this? You know, you could just imagine one of these again maybe another meta one and they've got all your recordings of you wearing it around the house or something or maybe you're in a confidential meeting at work and about some amazing new thing that's going to launch and somebody's got insider information or something so it does raise a lot more questions i think it really does at the same time with my researcher's hat on there is a lot of innovation that has come from the iphone so people having a microphone on their device you're able to record it and that could be potentially used for parkinson's apple have it themselves when they're talking about recording your voice if you've got a condition where you're losing your voice you're able to talk i suspect that there are applications of watching how stable people's pupils are when they're monitoring something and how quickly their attention changes that may be indicative for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, other conditions. So I think there are legitimate uses for this this level of technology that we would like access to as researchers. The problem is the shady people will outdo us because as you say, meta getting hold of exactly where you are, probably where your house is beyond the location data from your browser because it can see what you're seeing out of the window, who your wife is, who you're talking to, what your business dealings are. All that kind of stuff. The, the the chances for abuse are exponential compared to just what you're clicking through on a web page. Yeah, that's fair, isn't it? It is. It's a very interesting world, and you know, I do like Apple's cautious approach with it, kind of like they've done with other devices. Slowly, slowly, catch the monkey, as it were. Get people used to it. Maybe open it up. Maybe then offer, you know, intents that you know some developers maybe could do more. If you remember when we had third-party keyboards on the iPhone, you have to. I think you have to click accept that. You know, the third party can see every keystroke you're going to push when you're using their keyboard. So you can probably see down the road they may open this up 
but there'll be an acknowledgement to the user that this developer can see more about you because it's the way you're going to interact with the game, with the app, whatever it may be. So I'm really interested in it and I love that they've just done a general purpose device rather than a this is for just doing X, playing games, doing AutoCAD and 3D renderings or whatever it may be, which is kind of where HoloLens was going for a while. It was very much deemed a work-based device matters. It seems to have been more on the gaming slash meeting side, whereas this just is, especially your iPad with some screens you know, wrapped around your face. Obviously, it does way more, but it feels like that's where they've started. Interesting, we've got the circle icons back on the home screen as well feels that the Mac had them for a little while the, the and lost them and we, we went back to the rounded wrecks that we've got on the iPhone. So I found that quite interesting. I'm surprised. It all comes around. Sticking with privacy, you, we have a story about DuckDuckGo. Oh, yeah. I just put this one in there because we often talk about web browsers. I didn't realize DuckDuckGo did their own web browser. I don't know if you knew this. You probably do because you're Mr. Browser, but it was just a very brief one and they've just launched on Windows, but it's already out on the Mac in their closed beta. And you can also use their app on iOS to, to get onto the beta scheme. But I just didn't realize that that go had done that, even though I use their browser, their browser, their search engine all the time. I had no idea they had a dedicated app slash browser to do it. Yeah, I knew that they did. I know they've got a few tools. They've got an amazing one somewhere. And I'll have to, I'll, if you remind me, I'll try and dig out the link for it. They will actually say, if you're scrolling on a, on a Google page, exactly how many tr- attempts it's made to access your microphone, your location data, exactly all the things that it's doing. It looks incredible. But it, it, I think it behooves somebody like DuckDuckGo to point this stuff out. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think it would just make me scared if it told me how often um, things were trying to record my voice or take my picture or whatever it may be. Yeah, fair enough. No, it's fair play to them. In the article, they're talking about the Windows Windows now has a, a DuckDuckGo browser. The Mac's had one for over a year. I think it's a good thing. It's, I, I don't actually know, but I presume it's just a reskinned Chrome again. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just a Chromium engine. I don't get why it's a closed beta, though. Like, open it up a little bit. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting as we talk about browsers a fair bit. Maybe it's Edge rather than Chrome because DuckDuckGo does use Bing, right? It does. And I guess Edge has got its Chromium fork as well. Exactly. Is that us for news? Yes. Good. Let's move on to media. I'm going to give my usual shout out to Silo. I've got one left to go. I can't wait for the next one. I've been really impressed with the show's restraint. It's really kept you guessing for sort of the big things towards the end. I'm actually getting a bit impatient now. It's come on. Reveal some of your big secrets to me, please, Silo. Amazing sets, great performances. Loving it to bits. Are you worried they've saved too much for the end? I'll tell you next week. Okay, fair enough. Because I've had that sometimes, you watch something, and you're like, how are they going to you know, tie a bow in all this in one episode? So it'll be interesting to see your feedback. Well, they're not, are they? Because that's why there's a season two. But you want them to give you enough before they go into season two. They need to give you enough that it's satisfying and give you a hook into the next season without it being disappointing. Very much. I believe you've been taking tea at the Abbey. <laughs> so I haven't watched Silo, and I know I said I will. I'm getting there. But for some reason, I felt the urge to binge a bit of Downton Abbey and I watched the whole of season one and a halfway through season two this week. I can't explain it other than I listened to Hugh Bonneville's book. He's one of the main actors in Downton Abbey. And I thought, I've never seen Downton Abbey and he's really famous for it. I have seen the Paddington films with my family and I thought, oh, I'll go and watch Downton Abbey. Very well filmed, I must say. And it was filmed, you know, 12 years ago. Still looks fantastic. I actually quite enjoyed it probably not keeping me guessing quite as much as silo did for you but i just quite enjoyed it and actually i can't believe i never watched any of it in the last 10 years so i think i might watch a little bit more of it 
Well, I guess you've, you've, you're watching a, a media sensation from a few years ago at last. That's not a bad thing. It even made it in some of the Marvel films. I feel like Iron Man 3, they did all that stuff about, you know, people watching Downton Abbey and it was such a sort of meta thing for everybody to be doing. So well done. I watched a few episodes of Downton. I think Maggie Smith is terrific in it. Hugh Bonneville is good in it. And there is some good stuff. Julian Fellows seems to rewrite the same thing over and over and over again, which I'm okay. People like that kind of thing. If you haven't seen it, I'd recommend Remains of the Day. It's a terrific film, also written by Julian Fellows in that sort of world. Okay, I'll have to put that down. I mean, it does feel like he's taken Gosford Park and expanded it over some seasons and maybe it's a bit, a bit better baked, maybe, the, the whole concept. But I, I think it's quite interesting. It's just set just before World War One. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't explain why I've suddenly got an urge to watch it, but you got to go with the urges sometime. You don't have to explain it. You're allowed to watch what you want to watch. I'm cool with that. Okay, so that brings me on to the next thing I watched. So I've been watching a bit of Glastonbury over the weekend. I don't know if you've seen any. I was in Scotland. You still get the iPlayer. <laughs> I had a MotoGP race to watch sitting in Glasgow Airport. That caused me enough problems. Understood, and hence why your phone had no battery life. I've watched a bit of Glastonbury. I watch it sometimes with the kids, and that is actually really enjoyable. I saw the Arctic Monkeys on Friday night, Alton last night. I watched a little bit of Guns N' Roses. I was very disappointed with Guns N' Roses. They just... I don't know. They just maybe Axel's voice isn't quite there, but Alton was stunning. Like fair play, he did some Belton songs. Really good entertainment. Watched it with my wife. But no, I just thought the coverage was great, and it always amazes me how they get the quality. You know, four K stream out of out of a farm in, in the middle of Somerset. You know, and stream it around. I'm guessing around the world at this point, and it looks fantastic. So I'm um, just just the the technical innovation they do there to like I say push all those bikes around the world is I think quite impressive and that the camera quality and the sheer number of cameras they have thought was really good hated all the filler in between sets though because you could just see the presenters just trying to waste time and it's like it'd be better if you just cut to the news at this point or something because you've got nothing good to say yeah so uh, Glastonbury becomes the fourth biggest city in the southwest of England when it's on really yeah they were literally all watching Alton on Sunday night because the, the the wide shot still didn't get everybody in it. And, you know, it's probably a drone at this point. It was fantastic. I I, I knew it was going on. I've seen some of the headlines on, on news stories as they've come along. I appreciated Apple doing a Glastonbury playlist. I listened to a bit of that while I was going here and there. Obviously not any actual live Glastonbury, just some Elton John stuff, some Guns N' Roses stuff, some Lana Del Rey stuff. All of whom I think had their own little controversies from what I've read since. But yeah, I you know, don't get me wrong. I, in years past, I've watched a bit of Glasgow. It is an amazing achievement. It's the kind of thing I want to go to more than I want to watch, if that makes sense. But I used to quite like the odd festival, but quite hard to get tickets for, must be said. But yeah, no, it is an amazing technical achievement. The BBC do a fantastic job here in the UK of sort of making that accessible to people and whatever is the thing you want to see accessible to. Yeah, impressive. Yeah, it's really well done. The fact you can just go and watch any gigs you want, fantastic. Yeah, and it's there. You can go back in the archive and you can go back years and years and years and you can see it. Yeah, the iPlayer is a true technical marvel, I think, to be fair. It is. I, I have a, an anecdote where I bought my parents a Roku streaming stick and when I was up there, I fitted it for them. I bought them it six months ago and it sat in a box doing nothing because he didn't know how to install it or set it up. And it's not difficult. You plug it in, you give it power. It takes the power from the USB on the TV so you don't even need to plug anything in. It's fairly obvious. Comes with an HDMI cable, comes with the remote control. You set it up, you scat, you you, you 
you log into a, a URL given to you by the device when you do it, you set up it because you're in the UK, it automatically installs iPlayer and ITV Player and, and Channel 4 and all that kind of stuff, all four. Sat in the box till I came along and did it. And my mother sat there going, nope, don't like it, don't want it, don't need it. Have you got that Scottish thing on the iPlayer? And I found it. Yep, this is the best thing we've ever had because she was able to catch up with everything. And just that, what a terrible, awful, useful, horrible thing I'll never want. Oh my God, that's fantastic because that gave me exactly what I wanted at that point. I think those little inflection points in technology are really good when you can hit them. Yeah, definitely. I think it still amazed my parents that the iPlayer's a thing. It's, we've really struggled to get them onto it, but yet you would love it if you got there because you can just pick what you want to watch and you can catch up with something you haven't seen or forgot to record. Yeah, or that show they loved from back in the day. Yeah, that is true. They do have a lot of legacy content. They do. Good. Moving on, Witcher Season 3 is coming June 29th. I can't wait. I love the last two seasons of The Witcher. It's a bit bittersweet that this is Henry Cavill's last run as Geralt, but Liam Hemsworth is taking over, I think, so I'm a bit less keen on that. Fantastic. Can't wait. It's always nice when it's something you're really itching to watch. I love I love the anticipation. It is good. It, it does occasionally make me stand back and go, I think I could cancel Netflix, and then they'll drop that one thing that you're actually waiting for, and I'm going to have to hang on at least till the end of this. Yeah, I only get it because I get it as part of my Sky package. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think my daughters, we've talked about this before, might kill me if I cancelled a bit at the same time for the one that's away more. She might have to cancel it anyway because she's away from home and she'll hit that month barrier. Yeah, that's going to become a problem for you, isn't it? We shall see. Anyway, Witcher Season 3, can't wait. They've split, they're splitting it into two halves. They're going to drop four episodes and then they're going to give it a couple of months and drop another four. That's annoying. But, you know... At least we're getting a bit more content. That's how they keep you subscribed. Yeah, you're not wrong. I don't like it, though. Anything games? else in media? No, should we move on to games? Games. Apparently, Gran Turismo 7 is still a thing. Yeah, so it keeps on giving, I put. So it adds three new cars. You can get an Alfa Romeo, Alfa Romeo Julius. You can get a Greening Auto Company Maverick and a Nissan GTR Nismo. So I just thought it was interesting. I love that they just keep adding little bits to this game. And I love this game. Did you watch the five-hour history of a game thing I recommended a couple of weeks back? Not yet. I think you should just start making your way through it. There's quite a lot of Gran Turismo mentioned in that. Yeah, I can see that because obviously it's quite an influential game. But yeah, Downton Abbey got in the way, sorry. Wipeout was better. Oh, I did like Wipeout. It's a good game. Wipeout was terrific. I'm very sad that they killed Wipeout off. Yeah, it's a shame that. And there's... there's a, Beans third party equivalents on the Switch and things I've got one but Wipeout was fantastic not the same oh, I'm glad GT7 keeps giving now I've got a bit more storage on my Playstation I'm, I'm less inclined to delete it so it is still there I do I, I may occasionally fire up I however have been taking advantage of the little bit of extra storage inside my Playstation and I've installed two games off the off the whatever the Playstation package is that gives you this ability the first one is Death Stranding which was inspired to by Hideo Kojima appearing during the Apple keynote, actually, saying that Death Stranding was coming to Mac. I think you said you were going to try it as well. I'm guessing you haven't. You probably haven't had a chance. I haven't had a chance, but I did look at it and I thought, shall I get this or not? So I'm interested to see what you make. Have you played this game before? No. Okay, so what did you think of it? Installed really quickly. The, the titles look amazing. It looks fantastic. It's got Norman Reedus, I think is his name. He was in The Zombie Thing. Walking Dead. 
he's best known for that and a few other bits and pieces as well. As the credits were rolling by, I noticed Mads Mikkelsen's in it. I thought, oh, that's good. I like Mads Mikkelsen. There's even featuring Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive and a few other things. So I'm building all this up. Looks fantastic. Nice scenery. Amazing music, actually. And you're, you're right, your character's riding along in a motorbike. Some stuff happens. He crashes the motorbike. And then you're walking around picking up boxes. That was my only concern from what I saw at the Apple event. In that it looked like you did a lot of walking in it, which is probably why I've held off a little bit. So I, I walked, and one of the boxes I'd had when I had my motorbike crash, you can pick up, and you can carry it in your left hand, you can carry it in your right hand, or you can put it on your back. And there's some like futuristic stuff saying how much weight you've put on, and you're carrying this, and all the rest of it. And I climb, and it wanted me to go over to another place, but there was no obvious way to get to the other place, and I switched it off, and I have no desire to go back and play anymore. Oh, that's not inspiring me to give it a go. I mean, don't get me wrong, it looks beautiful, and I'm sure there's a great game in there with some fantastic actors and some nice music, but they seem to have forgotten the gameplay part of this. Yeah, but the the company responsible for it meant to have made some amazing games and really well respected, so I'm surprised, but that's what I was worried about. It was just going to be a walking simulator. It might just be me. I don't always twig with some of the sort of Japanese sentiment for, for games. There's a few of them I just haven't got. Persona Golden is another one that lots of people rave about and I've tried and tried and tried and I can't get my head around it. The sort of Elden Ring style games, also there's really hard core gameplay, not really a thing. The only one I almost clicked with clicked with once was Final Fantasy VII. I don't know if you played Final Fantasy VII back on the original PlayStation. Nope. That was terrific. A Japanese role-playing game, JRPG as they're known, and that really worked for me. I think Pokemon is actually a or a variant of the battles and things from from that style of game, so that actually worked for for me. None of the subsequent Final Fantasies did, but that one did for some reason. Came on four CDs or four DVDs, actually, it was huge. However, speaking of Japanese games, I don't normally click with the second one I tried is Gravity Rush Two, and if you haven't tried it, rush out and get it now. Looks amazing, sort of a cell shading, and has this fantastic, unusual mechanic in the way Portal has that instant translation between two places. Gravity Rush lets you pick a point on the map and shoot across it, making use altering gravity in whichever direction you want to fire it. It's really quite novel. It's extremely well done. The art style is wonderful. The voice acting is great. It's all in Japanese with subtitles, and it's got the sort of anime look to it. I'm so impressed with Gravity Rush 2. It's quite an old game, I think, at this point, but well worth a look. Yeah, the art style does look good. I was just looking at it on on the Bing, Bing DuckDuckGo images. Yeah, it looks quite interesting. I just... I don't know how you find the time to play so many games, or at least to try so many games. Yeah, I don't get always get very far on them, because there's always Slay the Spire, in the same way there's always threes for you. But this is quite an impressive one. I will go back to it. Came out in 2017. Good stuff. Have we got anything else on games? No. Shall we move on to the main show? Well, we have got a bit more on games, because you're going to talk about it in there, but that's okay. Main show. I am. So, main show, I just thought, why don't we just briefly talk around any summer projects that we might do, some tech projects. So... I've got about three I think I'm just going to briefly mention. So first up for me was my son wants to play with a Raspberry Pi. He's bought a magazine. He wants to do a bit of coding. And I thought, I've got a Raspberry Pi. I'll set it up for him. So I found the Raspberry Pi, found the memory stick, plugged it into my Mac. Now it's got a memory card reader. Just went on Raspberry Pi's website, downloaded the image. Boom, I've got a brand new Raspberry Pi ready to go for my son. I thought, that's great. I said to him, there you go. Plugged it in for him and said, you can just play with that. And then it doesn't matter if you break anything, but click everything. I just want him 
to try everything. So we loaded up the terminal. He's like, what do I do now? And I was like, well, you can type uptime and see how long the computer's been on. And you can type clear and you can list out what's on there. He got quite bored with that quite quickly. He was like, yeah, but why would you use that? And I was like, well, this is what computers used to look like before you could use a mouse and a keyboard and, and all of that. So it was interesting to see him use it but I don't think he knew what to do with it because the base image doesn't come with a lot. So what we now need to do, I think, is where he's got the magazines is start helping him out to get him to, to do a bit of coding. And so I think he would quite enjoy that because he likes to make things and he likes to, I think, take something and modify it, which I think would would spark him with the program because he could take something out of the mag and then make some tweaks to it. So that's what we're doing on the Raspberry Pi front. Not, not overly exciting, but just interesting to see an 11-year-old use a Raspberry Pi. I think there's lots of great projects you could do with a Raspberry Pi for, you know, the stupid software things. Like I use mine for Homebridge and I use mine for my Pi Hole, which always sounds wrong, but it's it's an ad blocking network for that I, I run on my home network. But the hardware stuff you can do with them is amazing. If you if you follow Raspberry Pi, Pi on Mastodon, they feature some of the better projects and things that are on there. So like some of the astronomy stuff is amazing. If you buy the Raspberry Pi camera as well, you can set it to take a picture every night at a particular time. And then you'll, you know, you've got some amazing nightscapes you can actually use it to take pictures of. You can use it for building robots. Casey Lisp already mentioned on this show, he has a garage door opener, a garage door monitor he built with his Raspberry Pi to just tell him the status of his garage door. There is a huge amount of sort of hardware and software hacking you can do with the device. And if nothing else, you could maybe learn Scratch or Python with it, and then you're on. You're starting off with a proper programming language to do these other things. There's lots of tutorials in Linux Format Magazine, which you get free with your News Apple Plus. Uh, News Plus subscription, that do things like tell you how to make Space Invaders in Python, and stuff like that that you could run very easily on a, on a Raspberry Pi. Might sort of spark them down coding if that's the way you want them to go. Or like I say, there's lots of hardware things. One that I keep thinking I might ever go at is building a weather station. So I can sit it in my back garden, you know, get a little wind speed thing, water thing. I know it's super geeky and we've talked about weather at the start of the show, but I think it's a very British thing to know what's my weather like right now where I am. So that I have a certain appeal for that. So I kind of get it. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I th- he just showed a real interest in wanting to have a go with it. And I was like, well, we can do that. That's quite an easy thing to do. I just had to find the right memory card reader. And it's great to see him use it, but yeah, he now needs that next thing because actually when you get a vanilla Raspberry Pi, there isn't a lot on it. And so he now needs the next thing, I think. So I'll tell him and get him some sample projects on there, show him how to build and run something, and then he can then go and tweak it. And he loves modifying things, so I think that might spark, spark his imagination. And that's how I started off coding. And I think Python would be a good skill because that seems widely used. It seems quite prevalent in academia. I don't know what your thoughts are, but that's what I've heard. It's been a long time since I've done any Python, probably back with you 20 years ago. No, Python is, it's definitely one of the dominant programming languages, both being taught from an academic point of view. We use it as an analytical language as well. So with some of the libraries for it, things like Pandas and NumPy, it's fantastic for a large scale data manipulation. It's the prevalent language for things like building these LLMs we keep talking about. Almost all of them are built in Python. TensorFlow and Keras and these sort of machine machine learning languages are all built. A lot of the image recognition stuff is in Python, right down to the basics of this is going to help me build Space Invaders or I'm going to write in my own text adventure game or whatever it is. So Python really runs the gamut of, of all of these sort of the backbone things these days. So you're not going to do anybody any harm by learning about Python. Hmm. Maybe, maybe I should do some too and something I could do with him. Definitely, it could be useful for both of you. And this again, there's some great tutorials about building your own LLM 
you know, on your own on your own documentation or your own machine learning model for something else. A couple of really great tutorials on on YouTube for how to do that in a very simple way. And then, like I say, you can use that backend stuff for controlling the Raspberry Pi for things like your weather machine or macOS scripting or whatever you wanted to do. Yeah, and the Raspberry Pi stuff is relatively cheap. So if we did want to buy another one or you know have it as a dedicated project, you can do it without actually spending a huge amount of money. So I'm quite happy if he wants to scratch that itch. Totally, if you can get hold of one. Particularly the Raspberry Pi 4 has been very resource constrained. I really, I didn't realise it's still constrained. Yep, they're very much in demand. Because the back to my decoder podcast, the CEO of Raspberry Pi was on the decoder podcast probably six months ago now, and he spoke very well. Actually, it was really interesting to see what they're doing. Made in Wales, really? I thought they were a Cambridge company, but do they manufacture in Wales? They're manufactured at the old, uh, at a Sony plant in Bridgend. Uh, okay, there you go. There you go. What's your other project? Next project was just trying to do something with the Vision OS thing, just to have a noodle around with it. And then maybe I can justify my own head next year if I want to get one and if they are available in the UK. But just trying to play with it a little bit and just, just try out because I've never used a headset. So just keen to, to play with it a little bit, even though, it, like I say, it's not the same experience on the Mac. But, but just trying to do something with it. I don't know what, but I just like to noodle around with it every now and again. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is that all three projects? Third project was just porting some games. So we talked about it last week. So that page you linked was fantastic. The walkthrough the guy did of all the things you got to install. It took a while. Actually made my MacBook really hot, which I wasn't used to. So it was clearly crunching some numbers. But what I was then starting to get into is how I could run some Windows software using the Wine interface to do it and install games and control panels and i got starcraft working which was fantastic i went and downloaded it from blizzard i struggled with the steam games i just couldn't get steam to launch properly i got it to install but it wouldn't launch it just kept erroring so more more work required there i did try again after i updated the beta but i saw it was great trying to lead around i haven't done anything like that for yonks so i actually quite enjoyed it and it was great to fire up starcraft and see what it looks like i do need to work out how many frames per second i was getting because is it I couldn't tell whether it was slow or not. And so you need to have a look at that and what, what's the right res to run at because I'm so out of touch with what is the right res anymore because it started off quite pixely and I was like, oh, I can just crank the res up, turn everything up a little bit. But I really enjoyed playing with it. So yes, yeah, some more work to do there, I think. But I was gutted I couldn't get Steam working because I wanted to join uh, Commandos. Well, that sounds really positive, actually. It's, it wasn't too much work to get going. You only get the one thing slowing you down. It sounds there, there's definitely a way to get an overlay up, isn't there, to see how many frames per second you get. So that sounds really positive, I've got to say. It doesn't sound like it was too much hassle to get up and running. No, not too much hassle at all. Actually, quite straightforward. And you, I mean, if I wanted to make myself a little app, you could just make a little front-end app to load up all the games and call all the commands because that's all you're doing. So that might be something to noodle about with. Sounds very positive. You almost make me want to have a go myself, but I'm not obliterating my Mac again. I would need to partition it. And then it's a pain to keep two at the same time. You just want it to be your main OS. I think I've reached the point though, because I don't use my Mac for actually any work and I don't actually have anything on it that's important at all. If I actually blow it away, it doesn't really matter. I could wipe it and start again tomorrow and it wouldn't really cause me any pain. Whereas my iPad would probably cause me more pain because I do use that for work. So I've kind of reached the point of actually my Mac, I don't need to keep it pristine. I can install stuff and play with it. And if I need to wipe it six months from now, so be it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Uh, I got 21% left in my iPad because I haven't used it in about 10 days. So I better actually put that on charge. 
I'm glad you're enjoying the best iPad Apple currently make. No, no, it's the second best because it was last year's one. They make an M2 now. Oh, okay. I've forgotten you got the M1 one. I love my iPad. I use it every day. Yeah, it's less and less relevant to me all the time. Shall I talk about my summer project? Yeah, what have you got coming out? Well, I share with you a little bit about the stuff I want to go back and revisit in Swift UI for the little app that I built to see if there's improvements I need to know about. I, I've got a few ideas for things I should be doing better with that. So I, the problem with that is you've got to reimmerse yourself in Xcode a little bit, really. And you know what it's like. Unless you're using it all the time, you begin to forget. And they've improved things, and you forgot why you wrote a thing, and my documentation of my code's not very good, and yada, yada, yada. But I do need to revisit that and get it up and running again, because it is reasonably important. I think there's, you know, I've, several hundred people have used it now, and I've got significant results from it. So it's something I do want to iterate on, but it's it's hard to maintain that focus with all the other things that we do, you know, both you and I. It's amazing we get time to do this podcast sometimes, frankly. Yeah, that's true. So I've got that too. I do need to download the latest developer betas. I'm not going to install the beta OS, but there's nothing stopping me installing the developer betas. Having a look at Vision OS, I would quite like, you know, I've got Xbox games controllers and things like that lying around. I could have a go and see what that was like. Save my app ran inside of Vision OS, for example, could be interesting. I can't think it's going to look very good. Uh, but so that's a thing for me as well, very much. And sort of all the changes in Swift and Swift UI. For me, I have talked before, I have a virtual machine server. It runs on an operating system called Proxmox, which is actually Linux Debian with some extra sort of niceties built into it, but that gives you a really good virtualization platform. It lets you build both virtual machines, which we've talked about, and run containers. So not quite Docker containers and things like that, but not a million miles away. You can provision operating systems in snapping your fingers sort of time. It's an old-ish Intel i7K processor, I think it's 11,500. So it's one of the gaming ones that you could overclock slightly for people who are into these kinds of things. But what that gives you is lots of cores. I think it's actually a 12 core server running on that. So each of those cores means you can run lots of virtual machines. It's got 64 gigs of RAM. It's quite a significant machine really. And it's got an older AMD graphics card in it that's capable of doing CPU pass-through as well. So you can actually run it slightly for gaming if you want it, or you can run GPU-intensive things on it. So the chassis and the internals are actually good enough for this. It's not in any sort of cluster, so if my virtual machines go down, it's gone. But internal to it, I have three SSDs, so two NVMe cards and one SATA all 128 gig SSDs because I didn't need a lot of storage there really. I just wanted the odd fast virtual machine and a bit of redundant memory. And then I've got four, four terabyte spinning rust hard disks in it in a ZFS cluster. And if I'm losing people now, then yeah, that's some geeky stuff I've got going on there. You've lost me. Well, it's all redundant arrays and storage and all that kind of stuff. Proxmox itself tries to use ZFS everywhere, which is a particular file system that's good for journaling. If you start getting errors on things, it starts reporting it. And that leads me to the why I'm even talking about this is first time in my life I've seen an SSD starting to go wrong. And one of the SSDs is now reporting errors all the time. And all I was using it for was for ISO storage. So if I want to try the latest version of Ubuntu, for example, you download an ISO and you can just boot straight from that ISO that's stored on the Proxmox server. So you have the installation up really, really quite quickly. And I lost all my ISOs and I'm getting all these ZFS reports to email going bad cluster, bad cluster, and it just deactivates the drive. If that happens on one of the raided ones where there's multiple drives, it can cope with that and recover and rebuild them if you put them back in, even in software, which is amazing. Used to need hardware raids to do this kind of stuff. But it makes me think, A, I need to replace the failed SSD. But B, why am I running all these spinning drives anyway? 
SSDs are actually getting so cheap at this point that maybe I could rebuild something similar with this. And let's face it, it's not essential to me. I've run my Plex server on and a few other bits and pieces in my WireGuard VPN server, but I can, I can use other things for that. But as my project, I want to start replacing this and renewing this and updating it. And it may be I blow it away, but back up the virtual machines and start again. But it's really handy if you want to try the latest thing in, in, in the Linux world in terms of server software or container or Docker. I've got that to hand to try it. So long story short, I'm going to gradually rebuild my Proxmox server with some cheaper SSDs. And this just shows how things have changed. I've linked in the, in the show notes to a hot UK deal for a two terabyte SSD for £69. And I just think that's an incredible price per, per gigabyte. That is a cracking price, isn't it? It really is. So I've bought one just to see what it's like. And if it's good enough, I'll buy another couple and I'll replace the raided part of it. So that machine, I aim to get rid of all the spinning rust in that machine and we'll see how we go from there. But it does make me think I have a, I have a Synology as well where all my archive and backups and things go. And it's got four, six terabyte spinning rust hard disks in it. We're getting to the point that maybe we don't need all these spinning disks anymore. Yeah, I think you're right. Spinning disks have got to be on their way out. It's rare that you see a device with them in these days. And, yeah, hopefully they're not long for this world. Mm. So that's my project. It's a bit nerdy and geeky, but I do like to fiddle around with these things and keep my hand in with Docker and Linux. And it gives you the opportunity to try out technology. And as you just said with your MacBook, if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can blow it away. But it does give you that ability to sort of keep up with what the state of the art is. And I'm not going to be good at it. I'm not going to claim I'm great at it. But it's nice to know where the sort of the cutting edge is at the moment is in our sort of world. Yeah, no, I get that. And like I said, I think that's probably why I got this Mac, isn't it? So I can noodle around and keep up with a, a bit of tech because I just haven't done it for a while. So, so I do see the appeal of it. I actually don't have any hardware projects this year because I think actually my hardware is in a reasonable state. I just want to play around a bit with the, with the software, I think so. It is interesting because I haven't done anything with hard drives in a long time. I've no idea what they cost anymore. It's interesting seeing that link you've put in the show notes. Yeah, they're definitely getting cheaper. I think now if you're in the market for maybe looking for a four terabyte drive for your PlayStation, you might want to keep an eye on things for at the moment because this price drop is going to hit a rock bottom and then it's going to shoot back up because that's what always happens with these things. And SSD pricing is just plummeting. Yeah, I don't talk about the PlayStation drive because I bought it and then it plummeted in value about a week later and i could have got it for half the value so i was a little annoyed to say the least often happens anything else from intro no i don't think so i just thought it was interesting to see what we might be doing over the the summer break and obviously you've got a big holiday coming up and i'm sure i have some time away with my family but it's, it's interesting just to keep you know keep current like you say definitely and you maybe we'll have a couple of shorter shows because other podcast networks do things like the summer of fun well done mike hurley i think it's a great thing but it can be quite difficult to, you know, to find a bit of content because everybody goes on holiday in the summer, the big tech companies included. So you don't always get that volume of stories. Yeah, that's true. Actually, it's a fair point. App of the week. Go on then. So my app of the week this week, because I used to this week and it made me think of it again, which I haven't for a while, is a thing called SeatFrog. So SeatFrog at its base level is just a means of buying tickets. You might use Trainline or other things for that as well and get a cheap ticket. Well done you. But if you have got a ticket and you fancy running for first class, perhaps, they let you upgrade your ticket for potentially a small amount of money. So the cheapest I've ever had was on the train from Swansea to Paddington. I upgraded my standard ticket to a first class ticket for £3. For £3, I got all the stuff that you'd normally get in first class. So free sam- well, sandwiches, complimentary, as well as coffee all the way. It's a three-hour tra- three train trip, so it's worth it. You also get access to first class lounges, though. 
First class lounges in places like Paddington are really quite useful. On Fridays, they gave you wine. Just a top tip, not that I would have do I would do such a thing. Chris's attention immediately perked up there. But you you get a better class of stuff in the first class lounge on a Friday. So if you are at all interested in upgrading your ticket or potentially getting a cheap ticket in the first place, you don't always get it so cheaply. I think the most I've spent is 18 quid. But it's actually worth it if what you want is a bit of peace and quiet to get on with some work. I pay for it myself. My company does not, I hasten to add. We don't stretch to first class travel, but occasionally if you want to spoil yourself, a bit of peace and quiet. A decent sandwich and a coffee. It's not a bad way to go. Sounds good to me. Occasionally I do travel first class on a train. And so if I could do a bit cheaper, I would very much like to do that. So yeah, for somebody who uses a train you know, every month or so, I'd be, I'm, I'm installing the app as we speak, basically is what I'm trying to say. Fair enough. I used it in Scotland as well, worked there too. I upgraded my between Glasgow and Edinburgh thing for £2. Not that first class was particularly great, but I was the only person sat in first class when <laughs> on the commuter run between Edinburgh and Glasgow, so that was quite nice. Part of the reason I like it is you can get an individual chair table, you can sit and work, and you get like a you, you do get free bottles of water, you get free coffee, so there can be some perks. Is it always worth the extra cost? Sometimes not. I'm normally working when I go, but I'd happily do it for a little bit less. So I will try that out. Well, that's it. And the seats recline on GWR as well as the other thing. They are good seats, to be fair. They are good seats. I still prefer the older train, though, with the dining car. Moving on. Thing of the week. Thing of the week. So for me, I've gone with the TVOS 17 Beta. Well, Apple haven't done a huge amount with it. What they have done is made the home screen so much better and actually really like it. And I mentioned at the top of the show... I'm waiting for the public beer out so I can put up my other Apple TVs in the house because I think having the extra row of icons is nice. Having the better control center is nice. There's just, again, just a few quality of life improvements. Like it's really easy to get to the doorbell camera. It's just up there and switch your input, your output, sorry, for your headphones and things, which are things I use all the time. So yeah, I really like that. And I think fair play, Apple, it's not a big release, but it's just that little quality of life improvement. I'll take it every day. You should try a camera on that just to see how it works. Yeah, I haven't thought about that because I never use FaceTime. <laughs> it's a fair point. There we go. There's follow-up for next week as well. Yeah, okay. I can give that a whirl. Cool. I think that's us. Yep. So end of the show then. So if anyone wants, wants to get into contact with us, Rod is at G5Maniac at Mastodon.scot. I am at underscore CJP at Mastodon.social. Or you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Cheers, Rod.